All right, welcome back everyone to another edition of the Why Marketing Podcast. My name is Rusty Pepper and across from me is Peter Horst. Peter, how are you doing? I'm great, Rusty, how are you? I'm fantastic, I'm excited about today's show. We've got a great guest that we're gonna get introduced here in a few minutes. But before we do that, I know you and I talked about this before the show, some changes we're making just a little bit to the format we're gonna try out on this episode. We're gonna trim that icebreaker down to just three questions. And we're also going to introduce audience participation where we reach out to our audience that follow us on LinkedIn and let them know who we're gonna be talking to on the show in the coming week and solicit questions for them. And we've got a handful of questions that hopefully we'll be able to go through throughout the show. So today we have Chris Walker, the CEO of Refine Labs. Chris, welcome to the Why Marketing Podcast. Rusty, Peter, pumped to be here. Looking forward to diving in. Let's do it. All right. right. Great to have you. Before we dive in too much, let's go ahead and just do a quick icebreaker, just to get to know you more on a personal level. So we've got three questions. Two are for you and Peter. The third is for just you. Are you ready? Let's do it. What's your favorite way to get some exercise? A, a very long run, 20-mile run. run. Okay. Wow. I'm impressed. All right. That's tough to follow. <laughs> um, for some reason that I can't yet totally explain, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, I took up boxing which is just an extraordinarily crazy hard workout and, and made me super impressed for the incredible fitness level of, of real boxers, which I am definitely not one, but it's just a great all around uh, total body exercise and a great way to relieve stress after a good day's work. I think anything you can do to get a good sweat, just get everything out, just bleh, is, a, is a good thing. Now, 20 miles, that's a little bit more than... It's a little bit more than a little sweat. Yeah, that, that's impressive. <laughs> Next question. If you could learn one new professional skill, what would it be? I feel like my skills in finance are pretty deep, but I think I could go deeper on the finance side. Yeah. My mind went to weird places. When you said professional skill, I didn't immediately assume within my current profession. So I went to, whoa, go to like culinary school and learn how to be a really good Mm. cook. But more relevantly, I find myself weirdly wishing I knew how to code software. Not that I would ever likely do anything terribly useful, but it's just one of those things that I feel like the, the more time that goes by and the more distance I have from that, the more sort of latent uneasiness I have about everything. Now with all the software products, you really don't need a code. You just have to click, push, and you're basically yeah, exactly. creating yeah. a website. You can do everything you need. That's the great thing about SaaS and, and those type of businesses. Now, the last question, Chris, is for you. It's what brand inspires you most and why? I would say that sort of to the point of my running comment at the beginning, I think that Nike has been very strong for me as a person. And so I've been always been a runner, but I had slowed down actually in my journey. And then right when COVID started hitting, I think you remember they put together a couple of amazing commercials that inspired me to go back out to the store and get some new shoes. And since that happened, I've run probably about 600 miles. So um, that's been cool. Thanks, Nike, for the inspiration. Talk about creating demand. Talk yeah. about it. No attribution to that one, but it worked. <laughs> right. Yeah, they'll never trace it back. Yeah, they're such a great brand and they're a beacon and case study of so many different things. But I, I love pointing to them how they've been so clear in their convictions and values and bold and how they have supported athletes in the midst of controversy, knowing that middle-aged white guys would burn their golf socks, but their core audience would stick with them even tighter. Mm -hmm. And that's just really, that's just great brands. They certainly have a really strong purpose, which acts as their North Star 
that helps guide them down their path, which is probably a really good segue into us just jumping in to this podcast and really talking more about your background, Chris, and what you're doing over there at Refine Labs for those that may not know who you are. Yeah, let's do this. I'll do it as briefly as I can. So okay, I, I studied engineering in college. I joined a, a very large British holdings company for the first four years of my career, bouncing around their subsidiaries, doing different projects in operations, lean manufacturing, product management, engineering, and then just general marketing. And so I spent my the first four years of my career really building, I would call the fundamentals at a very large at scale business. At the same time, I built several e-commerce stores that... Um, through my, from my bedroom that I would import goods from China or Turkey or other places in the world and sell them on Shopify and Amazon using a lot of the tactics that we use today to sell enterprise software, like organic content marketing and paid marketing and search marketing and different things like that. And then I joined my first venture funded company in 2016 called Vapotherm, which is where I think that I had all of this foundational skills and knowledge and actually got to apply it to a high growth business. And so I went into that company. They hired me as a field marketing manager for a specific segment. I spent three or four months in the field talking to customers and different things like that. And I looked at the, I was looking at how we were going to market. I was looking at our business data in terms of sales cycle length and win rates and customer acquisition costs. I was getting qualitative data from customers and from reps. And I came back and I was like, why are we going to market this way? Our sales reps were driving three hours across the state to have a meeting with somebody that's not interested in buying right now because we have too many sales reps and we don't have enough demand in the market to push it through. Why are we not creating demand over the top for our reps where we have inbound leads coming to us who are ready to buy that want them to come to their hospital to show them the product because they want to implement it. And so I went on a mission there over the past, over the next two years to build an entire demand gen and brand function inside of that company from the ground up, starting with website and marketing ops, all the way to community management, paid ads, organic social video podcast. I did it all. I think that's a tip for, for marketers is I think one of the reasons that I'm such a strong, well-rounded marketer is because I basically did it all instead of a high growth company. And that company eventually IPO'd was rather successful. Marketing's contribution to revenue and lowering customer acquisition costs was quite, quite extraordinary. And then I left that business and I got exposed to what's happening in other different startups. And I saw what they were doing, things that I tried in 2016 or 15 and knew that they didn't work when measured against revenue. Companies think that they work because they measure it against leads or vanity metrics. Measured against revenue, it doesn't work. And I knew that I had just discovered a way that drives revenue, that lowers customer acquisition costs, that increases marketing's contribution to the company's overall revenue therefore lowering the reliance on outbound sales to deliver the whole number. And I decided that I would start my company because I thought I had a unique way of looking at things and a unique way of doing it, things that worked and, and have continued to, to do that for companies and grown. We started the company two years ago. At, the, at present, we have about 30 employees and work with about 30 total B2B SaaS companies globally. It sounds like you must have had a pretty receptive CFO to be able to have that much Latitude to be able to create all those different platforms and test them. Yeah, I had an inc incredible CMO that I worked for there. But the key about this is that this is rational business talk. And so part of a marketer's job is being able to speak in business terms to a CEO about what's going on. Was it hard? 
yes, I started with a $500 budget. And when I ended two years later, it was multi-million dollar annual budget. And so, but I had to start with 500 and I ran $500 in ads. I collected four leads. I progressed them, tracked them through the funnel over 90 days. We won one of them for 25K ARR and we spent 500 bucks. And so when you go back and you say, hey, we can do a lot more of this if we decide that we can, instead of spending $29 million a year on sales, we can do something a little bit differently, spend more on marketing, that I can make more of this happen, therefore delivering 30 to 50% of revenue for every single rep across the country so that they're not missing quota every quarter. And that's the way that I positioned it to the company. And I was able to have a lot of flexibility in the things that I wanted to do. I was super benefited that I think a lot of marketers don't have is that company was incredible marketing strategy, didn't have a lot of marketing execution, relied entirely on the field sales channel when I got in. So they didn't have MQL targets that don't matter. They weren't obsessed with metrics that a ton of SaaS companies are that don't map to actual business results that marketers optimize for. I wasn't put in a box inside of certain channels. I had a lot of flexibility, which I think is one of the reasons that I've been able to innovate and why I have this company right now. And so there's CMOs or CEOs or business leaders listening, like giving smart people space to go and figure new things out is a good idea. I would have to think that your ability to step back and see this opportunity and construct the kind of multi-part ecosystem that, that drove business like that is due at least in part to your background in engineering, kind of systems thinking and almost a quantitative view of what people often don't bring that kind of rigorous view to is, is, am I sort of dreaming that up or do you think that really helped you there? Yeah, I, I attribute this to two core things. The first one is that I went out for three months and I understood customers deeply. I understood the difference between what a customer that's an evangelist of our product thought and a prospect that was not interested in buying and what the gap was and what those people thought about us, our category, our product, and different things like that. I understood deeply how customers felt about us and what they were going through, which allowed me to do better marketing. Another insight that I found when I was in the ICU at two in the morning, as I watched what all the nurses and physicians were doing when they weren't taking care of patients. And they were on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube, which gave me a huge insight. We weren't doing, we, put, we, we were not putting content on any of those channels. So I was able to go back and figure out, okay, now I understand them. I understand the stuff that they like, and I understand where they spend time so I can create content and I can put it in those places and I can collect data and I can keep getting better. That was one insight, just customer understanding. I think is dramatic, that drives strategy, I think is dramatically overlooked in a lot of tech companies. The next one I do believe is a combination of systems thinking and my experience in lean manufacturing. I worked at a company, I did a project where we were manufacturing millions of parts every year. And so by making a process a little bit better or reducing the cost of one specific part, it could make a dramatic impact to, to the gross margin of the overall business. And so I got to look at those different things. And when you're running a manufacturing facility, you buy supplies, come into the facility, they get processed through something and then you get an output. Some of them get scrapped because they weren't good. Other ones get out and they go to customers. The exact same thing happens in a business's revenue engine. They have a lot of different parts that I consider leads. They get put through a process, sales process. You get a lot of scrap, close lost, and you get some that move on and get shipped to customers. And when you look at those in different streams of leads and how they flow through the system and what happens in those different things, you can figure out, okay, these are the leads that I actually want. These are the leads that win at the highest rate, that have the shortest sales cycles, that's the most scalable, lowest customer acquisition costs. How do I get more of those people to come through and talk to our sales team? And that's what I look at. Do you all have a pretty straight understanding of who your ideal customer is? 
Can you talk a little bit about that process to identify and create that ICP that I think a lot of marketers struggle with? Totally. Yeah. When I started this company, SaaS wasn't our target market. It was just companies that were selling products. We do this through a lot of customer insights and learning. And so as we started to develop the first six months, first step when you start a business, get enough customers so you can pay your bills. So I've got enough customers that you can pay your bills. And then I started actually going out and interviewing people. I saw that people, I posted content and started doing marketing, saw a lot of people in software at the executive level responding to it. And so I started having them on my podcast. It wasn't even a real podcast at that point. It was just a recorded Zoom where I could talk to a VP of marketing at a $50 million SaaS company and understand what's going on in her world. Understand what how they're measured, what they're struggling with, what they're working on, what they're deciding not to do. And I did that five or six times and I started to understand nuances. So that was one piece. It's just deep customer research, which I believe in a lot. I've mentioned that twice in this podcast already. And then it's it's about actually, I think, going through a process as a company it's inevitable that you're going to take on customers that aren't a great fit. You're not going to know that until you take them on. And so by taking them on and then understanding, okay, these customers didn't work out, didn't work out for whatever reason. And then you start to identify patterns. And over time, we've identified patterns of the companies that are the most successful with us, that stay with us for at least several years, that get the best results, that are the easiest to work with, that are willing to pay the most price because they get the most value. And so by, by trial and error, we've been able to tease that out. And now we have a very unique ICP, which creates, we auto disqualify a lot of people just because we know either based on their mindset, what type of product they sell, how much it costs, or a lot of different things about whether or not they would actually be a good fit in our model. But it ultimately comes down to, and I think a lot of people overlook this, our number one qualification criteria outside of firmographics is psychographics. Do they believe in what we're doing? We're over here implementing a, a marketing model that is entirely unique. If you want, if you're measuring it in the traditional way, if you're listening to traditional people about what they've been doing for the past 10 years, you're not going to be successful with us. And so when we look at that, when we look at psychographics from a mindset, are they aligned? Do they have they listened to our podcast? Do they follow our content? Do they use the same language that we use because we've done marketing? Those are the things that we're looking for that set us up for a really a long-term successful partnership. You know, along similar lines, I have to say, I was so struck when I read the description of Refine Labs, basically your elevator pitch. It was just so tight, so crisp, so clear. It was like the model of the great elevator pitch. And in a world that is filled with various organizations that have solutions and demand gen, lead gen, and so forth, I was just really struck by what, what I thought a fantastic laser clear job you did of that. And people write whole books on how to craft your elevator pitch. I'd love to just get your thoughts on what did it take to, to, to do such a spot-on job that so clearly articulated who you were, what you do, why you are, why you're different, why you're special. It's funny. The place where people miss is not in the writing. They miss in the targeting and the segmentation. And so the reason that we're able to create a simple and comprehensive elevator pitch, so to speak, is because we have such a narrow ICP, our product is specifically built for them and we know them deeply. Where people miss is that they re they refuse to make choices about who are their best customers because they wanna have a larger total addressable market, they want their sales team to have more places to go call on, whatever they wanna be able to report back to their investors that the company could be 10 times larger than it actually could be so they can get a better valuation multiple, whatever those reasons are, People don't want to make choices about who their real customer is. And I've been doing this for 10 years. And the more narrow you get, the faster you grow, the better it is. And then you can start to expand out later. 
And it, I actually don't think it has anything to do with the writing. I think it has a lot to do with making choices on who our customer is. And I, I just know deeply that those are the challenges that those companies have. We have a clear way to solve them, which makes it easy to win and easy to message. Now, you work with a lot of different marketers and CMOs within your business. What's broken in the current marketing strategies that most CMOs are out there deploying? Well, I look at this in three layers. And so uh, layer one is mindset. Layer two is metrics. Layer three is execution. And I think that if you don't fix number one, then all three of them break. So I think mindset at the executive level about what marketing is, what they're supposed to do, could use a could use a refresh. I think in a lot of organizations, marketing is put into a box of sales enablement and lead gen is the things that that a lot of companies do. And, they get, and then their measurement mechanisms go in right into that bucket. Let's build trade show booths for our sales team. Let's do a bunch of lead gen things to, so our sales team has 3,000 people to call on, whether or not they close, who cares? And then that the measurement mechanism flows directly into execution because people are going to optimize for the things that they're measured on. And But it starts at actual the, the mindset layer. And so I think that executives need to rethink what marketing is at the uh, 10 years ago, or even maybe a little bit even sooner than that, but definitely 10 years ago, sales was the best way to go to market in a B2B organization because you didn't have the you didn't have the targeting capabilities people didn't the internet was not at maturity and having a sales relationship to guide a process was the way to get it done now 10 years 10 years later buyers have access to an abundance of information they have a network of trusted peers that they communicate with daily over the internet about what products they use what things they're working on what new tools they're exploring what consultants they're working with blah 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 and so because of that shift, buyers can choose things about what they want to buy without ever engaging with a sales rep. Most of the companies- There's also a convergence between sales and marketing too. It's become way more aligned than it has ever been before. Mm-hmm. I, think some people, I think some people think that way. I don't actually see it that way at all. And the mind, what companies need to think about from a marketing standpoint is that marketing can be the lever that drives your business more than anything else in the company. You're going to need it. You're going to need to have a good product. You're going to need to have a you need to have a good sales team. But if you hit marketing, the momentum that gets built and the trajectory that happens is not replaced by it can't be replicated by a sales team. So I think people need to really think about that in terms of how much weight they carry in how buyers make decisions that I don't think executives realize. And if you made that adjustment then you would change the metrics about what marketing does to, I need to figure out how to get more people to come to us that want to buy, that want to talk to our sales team that are highly qualified, that close fast and win at a super high rate. That's how marketing should be measured across the board. And then ex- and then it would flow down to execution. Okay. If we're looking to get people to come to us that are qualified, that actually want to buy, that actually convert to revenue at a high rate, then we're going to have to stop doing almost all the shit that we're doing right now. And that's what I did in 2017. I was I completely changed the things that we were doing from a lead gen to a demand gen model. I saw how much better it worked, how much shorter the sales cycles were, how much happier the sales team was when they were hitting quota or getting to President's Club or all those different things. And that's just the way that I've been operating ever since and continue to build and innovate on that model. But the, it's the mindset that needs to change. I'd love to double click on the sales marketing Point. And one of the, the big challenges in particularly a B2B environment, and certainly one of the big things that hit me in the face when I took my first B2B CMO role, is getting that relationship right and creating kind of the positive ecosystem. And I know that's something that you've you know spoken about and have thoughts about. What do you think is the key to making that relationship work well and be a really high-performing 
system. Align goals and incentives and mutual respect for what each person in the organization is there to do. And so I think that for the most part, that historically marketing and sales goals have not been aligned. Marketing scored on leads, sales is scored on revenue. And I have dozens of conversations a month from CROs that say, I really want our marketing team to work with you. They keep hitting their MQL target by 200% every quarter, and we keep missing our quota. Something doesn't feel right here. So having a lot aligned outcomes is step one. So aligning both to pipe and revenue would be smart at a contribution level between outbound and inbound that makes sense for your business. That's hopefully grow increasing on the inbound side over time is the next one. And then mutual respect and capability from both of those two people. And so what I see is that I see companies trying to change, okay, we're going to align our, we're going to align our outcomes. So we're going to have marketing and sales both be scored on pipeline and revenue. But then the things that marketing does don't change. They change their, the whole point of changing your metrics is so that you can change your execution. And so what we have now is we have companies that are scored on pipeline and revenue, but are still running the same lead gen model, just measuring it differently. And they're still not hitting the goals. And so when it comes to that, it's the organization's belief in marketing and the marketing leader's job to deliver on those people believing in them from an overall demand standpoint that has more buyers coming in to buy. I think that those are the two places where I see it break most frequently. There was a point that, uh, that Rusty made that I want to get back to on the convergence of sales and marketing. I think that from the outside, and from, I hear plenty of people saying it, that they're coming together. I understand that perspective, but I actually, and I do both of them right now. So we do marketing, I do sales, like a lot of people in our company do the same thing. And so I, I understand it. But when it comes down to it, I draw a very fine line in the sand between what is sales and what is marketing. I'd actually say that most marketers today actually do sales. And so from a, from a mindset standpoint, if you're like sales is conversion, sales is I want to get that meeting right now. Sales is I need to get that revenue right now. Marketing is I want to build brands so that people sell themselves. And so I look at it between sales and marketing or sales and brand or conversion brand, however you want to split them up. But most marketers spend zero time in the brand camp. And oh, guess what? Brand is getting built on the internet and driving sales. And so we've converted most of the companies that we work with where our executions are not performance marketing executions. We run brand stuff inside of paid social to drive awareness about the product. And then we get measured on sales metrics. And so it's been really interesting because everyone out there is, oh, it's brand. It's difficult to measure. It takes a long time, blah, 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 blah. We're doing brand marketing inside of paid LinkedIn and paid Facebook and paid Instagram and different things like that. And we're getting measured on short-term sales because brand drives the most demand. And that's what I just want people to understand. Yeah, you don't have the direct attribution. Yeah, you can't like model it out in your little spreadsheet, but it works better. But when you look at some of the different companies you've been working with, what have been, what's it been hard for them to make that shift? Obviously, they made the decision to go in and hire and engage with you. But what are some of the challenges that they still have to fully embrace and move into this new way of creating demand? Let me, I'll start with this way. For every company, it should be easy. The reason that it should be easy is because when you pull the historical data of the performance of what they're doing right now, it's not good. And so step one for these companies is to look at what you've been doing over the past 24 months and quantify how well it's working, figure out the couple things that are working and the bunch of things that you're doing and spending money on that aren't, 
which then allows you to figure out where you should go next. I would, I actually am fascinated that more executives don't do that at a marketing level, at least the depth that we do. And so it should be easy for executives to get on board because we generate that data and we show them what's happening. And regardless of how many leads they get, their qualified opportunities are staying low and consistent. And so we show them that data and then we convert to, hey, we're not scoring on leads. We're scoring on AE qualified pipeline, not banned from an SDR. They sat on a meeting with an AE. The AE thinks it's a real deal. There's an amount attached to it and it's moving through a process. And we're going to measure on that because none of the leads that you're generating are going to get there because the AE is going to disqualify them out and they're going to move it to close loss and it's not going to become qualified by our definition. So we're going to change the definition of a lead and we're going to change the definition of qualified pipeline. And then we're going to optimize for those different things. Where people fall down on this one is that they have a, there's, two components. One, they're moving into a new model that's, it could be scary. And so executive alignment across the company about what they're trying to do. The companies that are most successful with us have strong executive alignment driven through a strong CMO that knows the path of what's going to work for them and knows how to manage their team. The ones that don't go as well, CMO can't manage their executive team. Executive team doesn't believe in their CMO. So I think that is one of the, one of the big ones. The second one is that companies need to change their expectations on time. And so companies have been brainwashed to think that you flip a switch in marketing and then all of a sudden, all of these leads come in. And yeah, if you want to run performance marketing and collect a ton of leads that don't buy, then you can do that. But you've been doing that for the past 24 months and you have not a lot of meaningful revenue and high customer acquisition costs against it. So maybe we should consider something else. And when you move from a lead gen to a demand gen model, you should expect that it's going to take at least one additional cycle to create the demand before you actually move them into a sales process. And so companies that change their, their expectations on time, typically we're seeing that uptake happen somewhere between the three and seven month mark right now. So Rusty, we've been so carried away with all this great conversation. We haven't gotten to any audience questions yet. So why don't we cool. uh, tee up some of those? Let's do it. The first one is from Bart says, we're having a lot of early success with what you would call a create demand solution, but we struggle getting ideal prospects to get over their status quo bias and embrace the change our solution delivers. What advice do you have for marketers who are attempting to create demand in a mature spend category where there's just not a lot of innovation, but huge potential? If people aren't getting over the hump to buy your stuff, then I would argue that you're not creating a lot of demand. And demand is people really wanting to buy. But let's go into this question in more detail. What you need to look at, is this a problem with our product? Is this a problem with our targeting? Or is this a problem with our marketing? And so those are those, there's probably more options, but I'll give those three. And option one, problem with our product isn't differentiated. It doesn't do things that we want. It's priced too high. We have a pricing issue. It's too high or blah, 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 blah. Product marketing is the first place that I would look. Number two was targeting. And so on the targeting side, perhaps you need to go more narrow in who you're going after. Like Just like what we talked about in the ICP earlier in this episode, I could go after every single company for marketing, but my company's growing way faster because I segmented it down to 10,000, about 10,000 accounts that could reasonably buy our stuff. And because I've narrowed it down, the messaging and the product follow and carry suit. And so perhaps you just need to figure out who is the real person that we're selling to. I get that we're trying to sell to the insurance industry with people with these titles, but what's underneath that that we need to go and figure out? 
And then the last one to look at it is demand. And so if it's not neither of those two things that people continue to buy the product, the messaging is resonating, the pricing's right, you have the right targeting, then you need to look at inside of these channels, are we doing the right work? Is the message being consumed? Are we hitting the right people? Is it making an impact? I think one of the bigger challenges for a lot of companies, especially if they have a commodity, and we're in a commodity business ourselves, we sell a lot of different products and services. The best way to sell a commodity is through brand, not necessarily paid ads. Now, second question from Bart, how overt should marketers be in executing ABM campaigns? Specifically, how do you feel about targeting ads with copy that is specific to the prospect? How about a landing page that is customized to a single customer? Is that smart or will it backfire as it seems creepy by the prospect? I, I think it's I think it's smart as long as it's done with the right intent and with the right mindset about what you're trying to do. Like just changing the name of the company and keeping the entire rest of the landing page the same is probably going to look half-assed and not that important. But if you're going to go after a million dollar account and you're going to spend the time to make a specific landing page for them and you really understand them and can provide value on that page, then you should definitely do that. That's what I. That's the only way that I consider ABM is full one-to-one personalization across high-value accounts. And that's. I think that's. I think it's a good idea. When we roll out ABM, it's going to be if we're, if it, we're going to call it ABM and not one-to-many or one-to-few demand marketing. Then if it's going to be ABM, then when we run an ad to that account, it's only going to that account because it's specific to that account. And so I think that you're on the right track there. And then the fine line between being creepy and not is purely driven on, do you understand those people well enough to actually do that page? I imagine if you've also created enough demand or interest, it won't be a problem. Yeah. The next question, this one is from Josie. Actually, I think we've talked about this one already, but it's specialist versus generalist versus strategist. I've heard you talk about the need for marketing leaders to be able to have the ability to fill multiple roles within their organizations. However, when most CMOs are building their team, we typically focus on hiring specialists under the belief that this expertise will enable our teams to move faster. What's your opinion on this approach and how are you building your team at Refine Labs? Totally. Yeah. A, a, a CMO is not going to do every person's job. My point is if you're trying to come up and be a CMO, that you'll be a much better candidate and a much better CMO if you understand how to do all of the core sub-disciplines of marketing, which I consider product marketing, field marketing, demand, and brand. And so being able to understand those things as you're coming up at a level of depth, quote unquote, generalist, right? People think that you can't be a generalist that also has specialist depth. And I'm, I'm trying to debate that point. I think that I've come up and I understand all four of those sub-disciplines that I mentioned at a highly deep level, which people think is, is the T-shaped marketer framework would say that's not possible, which I just don't think is true. And so my encouragement for people that are coming up in marketing is to become the holistic marketer, to understand how all the different pieces of marketing play together, to understand when you do an event, which is field marketing, but then you film it and you create a video podcast out of it, which is brand, and then you run ads about it to specific accounts, which is demand, that they work better when they all happen together. And so that's what I'm suggesting yeah. for people. But from the CMO side, yeah, you're gonna you're leading a team, you have a vision, you're gonna hire people to own the roles that you need to get built out in a very small startups where CMO only has, and you're probably a VP of marketing at that point, you have two or three director points, you're just getting started and maybe you're a series A company. You're going to have to do a lot of the work. And I think at, at, at that level, in that company stage, the VP of marketing is going to get their hands dirty a lot with the point of trying to prove 
that certain things can work, understand how they work at a deep level so that you know who to hire and what skills they need to be successful and you can show them how to do it. And so I think it's, I think based on company stage, this question can be answered in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Peter, based on your experience, how were you building your teams? Were you focused on specialists or generalists? From my perspective, it depends on the company. It depends on the stage and what the challenges were. There was a time where digital was becoming more and more critical part of the marketing mix. And you certainly wanted to get to a place where you had a lot of generalists who were adept at all the traditional channels plus the digital, but we weren't there yet. So from an organization perspective, we needed to have digital specialists who had deep chops in those areas so that we could get that work done and infuse the DQ, so to speak, into the rest of the organization and evolve towards more of a generalist model, less of a center of excellence. Chris's has really resonated with me in terms of the need to really deeply understand the part. Certainly, as you move on in your career, you get less and less of that hands-on sort of time under your belt. So it's hard to stay as totally up to speed in the depth, at least. I found that hard. I think where you need specialists really depends on what's the, what are the jobs you get done and are your generalists there yet. I'd love to, at the risk of jostling our, our listeners, ask a follow-up question for Chris. It's so clear from listening to you that you're a huge champion of brand and the power of brand in a B2B environment. And not all B2B leaders totally get brand and totally believe that. I think more and more over time. But talk a little bit about what B2B leaders really need to appreciate about the power of brand. Yeah. So just for people to understand my definitions here, I'm looking at it in two camps, brand or performance. And the only things that differ are your mindset and your measurement model between what you're doing. You could do the exact same thing and you could measure it differently with a different intent and they could be brand or performance. And so this is more of a mindset thing, right? You can run performance marketing on LinkedIn ads. You can also run brand marketing on LinkedIn ads doing almost the same thing. From a brand standpoint, the thing that you're doing is you're trying, you're not trying to convert someone right then, which changes what you do. And so when you're not trying to convert someone into a lead or into a meeting straight away, which is short-term and transactional, you can provide value to somebody, you can educate somebody, and then you would measure it differently. I would measure it on what was the engagement with that video. How many people watched the five-minute video that I posted on LinkedIn this morning? It's probably 10,000 people right now, and it's going to continue to grow. What is the value of that? Probably better than most of the people that just send spam emails to try and get meetings on LinkedIn every day. That's the difference between brand and performance. And so I think that people need to wrap their heads around that idea because buyers are leaning more into brand than performance because the buyers are in control. They have all the information. They have access to trusted peers. They can make decisions on their own terms. They don't need to go to that meeting to learn something new because they can learn it from somebody else when 10 years ago, the only way they could learn it is by going to a conference or talking to a sales rep. And so now that the buyer is in control, and the only reason that I got to brand is because it works a lot better. And it works a lot better because it's aligned with how buyers want to buy. And so I want that's what I want to communicate on. And it's to, to me, it's the difference in your intent and your measurement model would drive whether it's brand or performance. And other and, people, you know, the way- yeah, just to go a little bit further on this one, a lot of other people and executives that I talk to a lot typically put things in the brand category that are difficult to measure or definitely don't work, but they want to call it brand to justify doing it. And so I've been 
a part of B2B companies for almost 10 years now. I've sat in every single thing where every year it's like, hey, we're going to go to these same trade shows again and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, oh, but we measured it last year and we created zero. We spent 50 grand in the booth and we created zero net new opportunities from it. Why are we going to go back? Because it's for brand, <laughs> right? And so they use it as a way to justify things that clearly don't work because they feel safe as opposed to doing something new, where if you spent the same $50,000 that they're wasting on a trade show booth with no return and you spend it on Facebook ads, it would get scrutinized in a completely different way because they don't see it as brand, aka they've accepted that it is a fixed cost. And those are some of my thoughts on brand right now. The other nuance in how you're talking about it too, is that brand as you're describing it delivers inherent value. Whereas the performance is a, the pestering sales activity, but yeah, yeah, yeah. When someone listens to a five-minute podcast from you, they walk away with value that's useful to them, which so, then leads them to pay more attention to you over time, which allows you to deliver more of your message, which allows exactly. them to consider to be aware of the problems that you solve and consider you to solve them when they see the problem inside of their business. And but right. people just want to go and try and convert someone and have a meeting. And what I found is that. And this goes back to a, a long time ago is that if you do marketing well, I don't even think it's sales anymore. I think it's consulting. And so that's the place and we're building it with my company right now. We sell massive deals in less than 30 day sales cycles because of our marketing. And other companies are trying to sell deals at the same size as us and they take more than a year. We do it in a month. And that's just the difference between our go-to-market strategy and theirs. Last question uh, from the audience, and then we'll wrap it up. This one's from Shannon. At what point should a marketing team outsource tactical activities to an expert third party, such as like promotional marketing execution versus keeping those capabilities in-house? I think this is completely dependent on what your strategy is internally for marketing. And so if there's certain things that you want to outsource that are cookie cutter and blah, 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 like SEO or different things then you can do it if you want. It's whether someone internally is doing it or whether you're paying somebody as a part-time person to do the exact same thing. Personally, it doesn't matter to me. If I was in charge, if I was in charge, I would want to own all of the things that I consider to be a potential competitive advantage in the future. What is the infrastructure that I need to build a competitive advantage and how do I do that in-house? And then how do I bring in partners that are not just doing tactical execution that provided new frameworks and innovation and different things like that, that we'll never find in our company because they're doing it across a hundred companies and we're only doing it with our one. And so we'll never be able to do that experiment or see how that works or different things like that because we're a sample size of one. And so I think people need to rethink how they think about outsourcing. I think that you should be insourcing a majority of things because marketing can be a competitive advantage for you long-term. And what you should be outsourcing is frameworks, innovation, and seeing someone that sees the world in a different way than you do. Awesome. I know our listeners have gotten a ton of value out of this. This has been amazing. Thank you so much. I'm walking away with just a, a handful of pearls of wisdom, things like the, the power of focus, the power of truly deeply understanding your customers, the criticality of systems thinking and depth of understanding of the, all the different parts that go into your business and how they're done as the leader and on. So thank you. It's a little surprise you're having such great success with Refine Labs. So congratulations on that. Look forward to seeing uh, where that all goes, but it's been great having you. Thanks so much, Chris. Appreciate you both. This has been a blast. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into the Why Marketing Podcast. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. 
and give us a five-star rating while you're at it. Until the next time.